folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. What's it like to go undercover inside corporate Korea? This summer, The Korea Files featuring a series of interviews with Michael Prentice, a PhD candidate in the University of Michigan's Department of Anthropology on the country's hugely influential Chaebol. Prentice interned for a year at a Seoul area company, conducting semi-covert academic research on the unique corporate culture of South Korea. On this episode, Chaebol to Chaebol stereotype, the structural differences of the Chaebol pre- and post-1997 IMF financial crisis and the institutionally militaristic nature of the Chaebol and the cult power of their leadership. Here's part three of my conversation with Michael Prentice. Down communication is the action of talking to subsidiaries. Um, in your writing, you address stereotypes of Korean companies that circulate among businessmen. Uh, they circulate stereotypes about company differences. These are made real based on perceived stances towards downward decision-making. And you give examples of how Samsung and Hyundai employees are perceived by other companies or by each other. Tell me about this. Yeah, sure. So um, when you talk to... Corporate employees, you know, to interviews or whatever, they'll often tell you, like, stereotypes about corporate cultures, like, oh, Samsung's like this, Hyundai's like that. And so what's interesting is the way that they, you know, what's what's the kind of image around which the stereotype um, coalesces or which they're compared against. Um, so one of the interesting ways is, you know, they'll talk about how communication moves downward through a company. So in, in Samsung's case, they will talk about uh, how things come out of the... Um, the planning office, that's that's the office that's controlled by Lee Gun-hee. It's an office, I think, of about 75 or 
200 people. And whatever comes out of there, they'll just say, do it, and then everyone else does it, right? So that's an ideological imagination of how people respond to, um, you know, orders from above. Right. Um, and that's mostly based on the power, the kind of cult power of uh, Egan He uh, and his office by proxy, you know, that whatever they say, people will do it. Now, Hyundai also works the same way, but it's a, it's not a sort of personality cult idea, but it's the uh, idea of a military. So there's a phrase that, and again, you know, Hyundai's changed a lot, um, but they'll say that Hyundai, Hyundai da, right? So Hyundai is, is the military. So Hyundai kunde, if they sound kind of sim similar. So the idea that Hyundai basically operates on military rules, uh, which is that you just do whatever your superior says you to do. So in a sense, both have downward communication that moves somewhat quickly. It doesn't always, it, it, the way it's typified or figured in some sense can change. It kind of tell you at least how people are orienting to that company. It tells you actually nothing really about how that process works in reality. I mean, but it does at least tell you kind of what the ideological um, site for um, this kind of stuff is. And so same with, um, to go back to the nut rage incident, you know, that's a similar example of, you know, poor talking down or, you know, a kind of a pejorative way of looking at, you know, of a senior person talking down to someone. Is a lot of down communication kind of inspired from the uh, authoritarian uh, vestiges of the old Korean way of thinking or militarism and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I think in part it has to do, so I was at a steel company uh, I mean, again, I was working uh, in an office, so suits, guys in suits, but um, a lot of the guys had fairly strong military, uh, well, let's see, but the company was 90% men. Um, it was, uh, you know, certain subsidiaries had kind of the, the skew was older, so you had the average age was 40 to, you know, 50. Uh, those guys, you know, back in the day had to serve in the military a lot longer, and the military culture and corporate culture in the 70s and 80s were a lot more closely aligned kind of ideologically, organizationally. So there is this kind of a, a lived habit to how people imagine corporate worlds uh, in that sense. And so for a lot of people, you know, they don't think about politeness. They just say, you know, you're below me, you know, you should do it, you know, or you should give me this file or something because that's just the natural order of things. Now, what was interesting that I would, I got to observe some different teams. So I was on the HR team, I got to see legal team, strategy team, and different teams had different styles of, you know, how do you communicate to someone who's kind of figuratively below you? So a subsidiary or another department or, you know, a department in a regional city. Um, and so I, I got, I became very interested in, you know, different politeness strategies, right? So from the headquarters to the uh, subsidiary, that kind of thing. But different departments would have different attitudes. Um, so finance department would just say, you know, give me the goddamn numbers on the phone. Uh, strategy department would say, you know, they would have a meeting over coffee and they'd say, let's talk this out, hmm. you know, that kind of thing. HR is probably a little trickier because no one really wants to know. HR has to be a little, you know, sneakier about what their intentions are. But um, just seeing how different downward communication worked in practice was, was very fascinating. Next, the out forms of communication. You write that after the financial crisis of 97, the government legislated an effort to shift to holdings company structures. Uh, what are holdings company structures, and how do they relate to out communication? And how do they differ from what came before? Right, yeah. So what, what a lot of people don't realize about um, 
Korean companies is that a lot of them have shifted to holdings companies. Uh, I think it was around 2001. And that means? A holdings company is a, is a legal model of um, corporate governance uh, where essentially there's, instead of a headquarters, say, that's doing the administrative planning, holding companies is, a at base, it's a paper company that has financial assets on the books. Uh, it has certain rules about... Um, what kinds of entities it can hold. So, but the idea is that the holding company is kind of the lens through which the market or the government can look at the activities of, say, a given group of companies. For example, um, Google just shifted to a holdings company model. So Google just shifted to the model that Korean companies have been using for the last 15 years, so this new company, Alphabet. And part of the reason that they do this is so that, essentially, when you don't have a holdings company, what happens inside the company can get it can all get added together can get released to the to the you know to the stock market to investors but you don't really know well is this division doing better than that one or where are they losing money but a holding company actually helps essentially it helps the market or it helps the government um, delineate like oh company A is really doing badly company B is doing well um, because it it facilitates the the information that that comes up from the different units uh, into separate kind of financial figures. So, so it's when I meant out in this sense, it was holding companies are really actually they're, they're sort of anti-corporate in the sense that they're, they're facilitating the, the information to go to another audience. Um, uh, so what did Korea have before the financial crisis of 97? Right. So uh, they would have, I don't know if there is a kind of a term for it, but they, they certainly didn't have the kind of GGM model uh, they had a, um, they had these interlocking shareholding chains, um, and what's interesting about that is that where the head of the company is could be a shifting, um, kind of a you know it's like, uh, you know it's like a I don't know what the right metaphor is, but you know they could shift very quickly. It's not where the most people are. It's not just where the you know the CEO is, but it could be a uh, small charity entity. It could be a nonprofit entity. Um, so, for example, in Samsung, there is a something called the Kewekshu, uh, which is the planning office. That's just an office that, I, I don't even know if it's a legal entity in some sense, but the actual headquarters on paper of Samsung is, well, as last I knew, was Everland, uh, which is associated with their theme park. Um, so neither of those will you, will you find Samsung Headquarters, Inc., or Samsung, Inc., um, you know, as the as the kind of top of the pyramid in some sense. So once you actually look on the ground of what's going on, you know, where the headquarters is in terms of planning and where the financial head is could be just very different um, orders apart from each other. You talk about the Korean market, um, and you say that it's not an abstract space of citizens and traders the way we might think of uh, North American markets um, with stockholders and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but... The Korean market is an audience of specifically situated government regulators, which you spoke about before, investment firms, and ratings agencies. So how is this market behavior different than uh, in the West? Well, this is something that is probably not directly related to what I'm going to write about. It's certainly something that's in the back of my mind, and I don't know if I have the answer to it yet, but has to do with thinking about, you know, what do people imagine the market to be in? So in the U.S., um, we imagine the market to be kind of filled with any man or any investor where anyone, kind of an abstract stranger, similar to an abstract citizen, can be a part of the market. 
or um, be an investor in a company. Now, you can take ownership just by owning, you know, just by buying a share or 10 shares, you know, you become an owner. So this kind of idea, it's very much tied, in my thinking, to how we think about publics or, you know, public participation. You know, anyone can be a part of this. And this is, has its roots in kind of classical liberal theory coming out of, uh, you know, ideas from John Locke and, and many other thinkers. And so part of what I'm thinking is, well, you know, Korea doesn't have this classical liberal theory, you know, as a kind of a bedrock to, um, to society. So, you know, how does that mean that, you know, does the Korean market look different? Do people imagine it to be different? You know, f- imagine it not to be filled with strangers, you know, who are just similar to them, but imagine it to be um, filled with other kinds of, you know, specific locatable individuals like, um, you know, the regulatory agencies, you know, the government, uh, government politicians or, you know, other kind of corporations rather than kind of the abstract space of the market. The final uh, uh, of the four in the dissertation discusses in forms of communication and looks at the ways that changes in HR policies over the last 15 years have shifted corporate communication significantly in the neoliberal era. You write about the communicative dimensions by which employees were evaluated before and after the period of the crisis. So prior to 1997, uh, all employees were considered lifetime employees, basically, right? Yeah, there wasn't a contract regarding that. but there was a kind of an assumption that you were a lifetime employee. So um, what changed after the crisis? Well, well the assumption went away. I mean, and it was interesting. I mean, my when I first went in for an interview with this company and the man who would be my boss, you know, he told me that he was, he became disillusioned with the corporate world when he had to fire 9,000 people in one day. Um, and after the 2000s, basically the only way that you could do layoffs, because again, it's not like U.S. Uh, and at-will labor law, where you can just fire anyone basically for any reason, um, besides legally protected categories. I mean, say you, you know, steal a cup from the, you know, company cafeteria, the company can fire you. Korea, you need a lot more evidence. Wait, uh, to, to sort of put a, a clearer point on the crisis of 1997, sure. Although, like you said, the economy didn't completely self-destruct, right. but it was a huge tragedy for Korean workers. Um, and the Korean joke at the time, IMF, stood right. for, I am fucked. Right. So that's not a very funny joke. Or I am joke. fired. Yeah. Or I am fired. Yeah, and you yeah. can still find uh, graffiti in sure, yeah. neighborhoods in Seoul with IMF yeah. on it. So, um, so... When this shift happened and people became fireable, yeah. uh, that was actually like so socially a really big deal. Right. Um, so in terms of in, uh, in terms of in forms of communication, right. what does that mean? So again, this is a, a nascent idea, but one of the things that I'm interested in. So in this performance world that we're in, this Sunquajubi world, uh, U.S. is in it to some degree. You know, merit-based world. Uh, it's, it's taken on slightly different forms in Korea. You know, how do you, how do you judge someone's character? How do you judge their performance? Uh, by what standards do you um, assess their, you know, competence to get a promotion, to get hired, to, um, to stay working at the company even? Um, and so part of my thinking with thinking about these kind of communicative imaginaries or communicative pathways is that, you know, the individual person, you know, and their individual voice 
has become kind of a new source for where people see their value coming from. So, um, so that puts a lot more onus on, you know, individual development, speech development, even, you know, you see the birth, you know, the growth of English language, you see the growth of self-help books, things called Chagi Kebar, um, self-development discourses in the 2000s era, opposed to say, you know, and this, again, I have to do more research on this um, in the dissertation, but opposed to in the, in, the, in the 90s and before, where you had emphases on, you know, where you were from, you know, who your family is, um, you know, what school you went to, kind of more, uh, you know, what kind of social networks you are embedded in as a, as a social person rather than who you are as an individual kind of core idea. Um, Again, disentangling that from liberalism is a is a tricky, tricky one. But it's certainly that kind of idea jives with other kind of research that shows that you know in this kind of 2000 post IMF era, you do have a lot more emphasis on individualism or at least performances of individualism as a basis for deciding people's you know merit in a company. Finally, you've described Chabel corporate culture as having moved from status to contract to performance. What does the rise of performance-ism in Korea since the IMF crisis, uh, the change from lifelong caretaking to performance-based approach, mean for the future of the Chaebol in South Korea? Yeah, well, I don't know about um, what it will mean, you know, as a whole government kind of, or, you know, um, public-private sector kind of institution. Um, my interest is in, you know, how is labor, you know, this kind of, I should clarify that I'm, you know, studying these white collar office worker types is what, you know, a lot of emphasis on self-presentation, performance, language ability, um, you know, what does that mean for um, the future of how people, you know, see themselves at work? Mm. Um, and I think it's a question that we have in, in North America as well, mm. um, you know, as an instructor, here at the university, you know, you have students who also seem to abide by some view of performanceism or performative kind of idea of a student, which is, you know, I'm performing what you want me to perform, opposed to I'm really learning, you know, okay. what's going on in this class. But um, that's something for me to think about. Um, and for, Kore to for Korean business folk, um, it kind of means uh, learning how to play a role uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to being sort of cared for in yeah. a familial corporate way. Um, yeah, so you can have different stances, and every day sometimes I'll shift, you know, do you want, is a corporation, should it take care of its members, you know, and, and that can have, we can think about it in good ways, we can think about it in bad ways, you know, taking care of members who do bad things, um, or should it be more, you know, kind of like stranger relations where, you know, you do a good job, you get to stay, if you don't go do a job, you leave. So there's not really um, kind of, you know, older notions of, you know, social obligation between employees. Let's leave it with something a little anecdotal. Uh, you describe Korean annual shareholders meetings uh, in your writing in which Korean companies participate in an annual shareholders day in unison with more than 200 or 300 companies. Uh, all of the companies do their meetings on the same day at the exact same hour. You write that while the content of the meetings can be mundane, there's a strong worry about the presentations being hijacked and disrupted by rabble-rousers paid 
by unions. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about these events? Yeah, well, I, I should say that I did, I've been doing some more background into super, what these things are called Super Shareholders Day. Um, uh, this is called in Korean Super Chuchong Day. It's kind of a hybrid English and, and Korean um, uh, uh, between the word for shareholders means is Chuju Chong Hei. Um, and yeah, I got to participate in one uh, for my company, and it was it was very fascinating because the whole thing went on script uh, from the start, you know, the opening announcements to the end. Literally, the Q and A itself was scripted. It ended in about 24, 25 minutes, um, and then I found out later that day that um, you know, whole hundreds of companies did it at the exact same time. I think either on that day or kind of over a series of couple days, but exactly at the same time. I think it was around 10 a.m. Mm. Not positive, but, you know, and, and there are these, this phenomenon of these guys who come and try to disrupt the meetings. And they, they basically kind of ask for money or food or something in order to, as a kind of a payoff, so that they won't disrupt the performance of the meetings themselves. And and I'm not sure how much those are directly related to unions or whether they're separate union protests that also happen around these meetings. Um, certainly big companies like Hyundai have um, more elaborate uh, multi-day uh, meetings where the labor unions are more involved. But for a lot of the smaller companies or smaller listed companies, it seems like they're trying to get over these meetings as fast as possible. So throwing a, a Super Shareholders Day off script is a form of union agitation? Uh, I'm not actually sure. I'm okay. still investigating the reasons for why, <laughs> you know, is it, in, in some ways there's a lot of criticism, criticism of, of shareholder meetings in the U.S. for basically being um, superficial, you know, things where everything's already decided and it's kind of a faux dem democratic environment. Um, where why, it's like, why would you leave everything up to the, the whims of just either some, some random shareholders who think they own your company because they bought it or mm -hmm. someone who might disrupt the kind of image that you're trying to project? Okay. So there's certainly, you're going to find the same criticisms in, in the U.S. about shareholders' meetings. But the, in Korea, you know, this, this mass coordination among the companies I find very fascinating, <laughs> and I'm going to try and write a conference paper on it uh, this year. So. Anything else you'd like to share uh, as we wrap up? You know, I think one of the I yeah I have very strong feelings towards uh, the company I worked with. I mean, I hope we don't construe it as Stockholm syndrome or something later down the line. But you know, I think you know when we imagine Chayball, we tend to imagine um, you know the kind of nutrage people, and and those people certainly have yeah those and the Cho family, which I've heard from other. People, the Cho family, they're the ones who uh, control Hanjin, which controls uh, Korean Air. They are sort of notorious for being a little wacky uh, or maybe out of touch reality. The f folks I worked with were um, extremely nice, um, extremely uh, thoughtful, really um, conscientious about the kind of corporate entity they were building, the kind of culture that they were cultivating. I mean, this is not to say that there's nothing to criticize or, you know, their labor relations aren't great, but they are very far off from being the kind of, you know, out of touch super elites um, who just either collect a dividend paycheck or kind of run the corporation like their, you know, sandbox. Um, 
So at a, coming out of that experience, I really had a different kind of view about you know how to think about both people at the top of these companies and people and also the owners as well. Michael Prentice is a PhD candidate in the University of Michigan's Department of Anthropology. Thanks for speaking with the Creative. That's the Creofile for this week. You can find new episodes of the Creofile on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Soul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find the Creofile there too and on Twitter at the Creofile with daily links and current news about the peninsula. And please leave a review of the show on iTunes. Every review helps new listeners discover the show. Five stars is good. Music on this episode is Ji Hyun on vocals and Shin Jyun Hyun on guitar with the 1972 song Ange Soki Yeyin. And our fundraising campaign is live. Sign up at patreon.com, that's P A T R E O N.com, to submit a monthly contribution to the show of as little as a dollar and to the Korea file in the search bar to find our campaign. Every contribution helps to keep this podcast on the air. On the next episode of The Korea File. From 1956 to 1959, Joe Smucker worked with the Mennonite Central Committee in Daegu, providing emergency relief services in a war torn country. In our conversation, airing on June 29th, we'll discuss his MCC experience in the 1950s, the research he's since conducted academically on economic development and the growth of a civil society post dictatorship, and the expansion of the Mennonite and Anabaptist movement in South Korea over the last 20 years. Until then, thanks for listening. From Montreal, I'm Andre Goulet.